Good morning, folks. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending on what part of the world you are watching from. And there is somebody creeping around my front door. I wish he'd ring the bell. Oh, ding dong. It is Mr. Chris Ballou from the President of the United States of America. Hey, Chris. Hey, welcome, man. Welcome. I've gotten... I've only just gotten into the habit of not saying, hey, man, how are you? Because, you know, we do all that when we first meet up and it still seems a bit fake. <laughs> I've caught myself out a couple of times doing that. It's like, yeah. no, keep it real. We've already done that. So a welcome to you is is more uh, the, the valid um, greeting, I, I do think. Chris, what yeah. part of the world are you in, man? I'm in Seattle, Washington, but more specifically, I'm on Vashon Island, which is a little island uh, just south and to the west of Seattle proper. So uh, I've been part-time living on this island for nine years, and just as of a few months ago, uh, me and my wife, Kate, are full-time islanders, and we're super excited. Nice. Nice one, mate. Cool. Now, Chris, I'm going to jump straight into it, mate. Um, I generally ask people, I told you I've got a blank slate here. I don't prepare questions except for one. What started the love affair with the guitar for you? Wow. Well, it was the thrill of making music <clears throat> while not being chained to a giant piano. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I grew up uh, playing piano uh, from the age of four. Uh, at, at, at four years old, my mom got me a teacher and started me on the path. And, you know, it kind of became my impression that I was being groomed to be a concert pianist from four to about 12 or 13. Yeah. Uh, Pretty intense lessons. And, uh, you know, but it never really flowed uh, naturally for me looking at the sheet music and, um, you know, translating it, getting fluent in sheet music was very, very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, All my teachers were fluent in sheet music. But um, anyway, so I was all about piano for all that time. And then I picked up a guitar. Actually, I picked up this guitar right here is the 1960s Goya acoustic that was my sister's. And then my dad kind of inherited it when she got married and left uh, to have her own life. And then I inherited it from my dad. And this was the exact fretboard where I first picked out, you know, like this is uh, what is okay. That sounds right. That's what is that? I don't know what that is. It's pleasant. That's 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 not pleasant. <laughs> That's how I figured out chords without knowing what they were called or anything like that. I just didn't connect. For some reason, I knew the chords on the piano, but I didn't. I didn't translate it to guitar for some bizarre reason. Yeah, right. Anyway, it was the thrill of being uh, mobile which is what really attracted me to the guitar. Not being chained to the big piece of furniture, I could go outside, Yeah, uh, you know, anywhere. So that was cool. Did you have a chord book or something to show you those chords or did you just randomly no. put your finger? No, you worked it out yourself. I just put my fingers in different places and was like, oh, okay, oh, there we go. Okay, that works. What Now what's next? Yeah, had no idea. <laughs> now, I, I've noticed that um, over the years, you don't use six strings. Well, that guitar had six strings, but back in the president's, yeah. was that- this is the this is the president's guitar. This is the one I played on the debut album, and I still play it to this day. This is a Kawaii. Uh, I only know it's a Kawaii because I found it online. It didn't say Kawaii on it. it said something. Well, it said something right there, but it's all worn off. Yeah, uh, it's got a real microphonic pickup in it yeah. where you can tap it. Actually. Uh, the 
solo in the song Candy on the debut record, I believe, is me uh, singing into this pickup. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just like. Yeah, because it was so microphonic. Um, so yeah, the, Mark Sandman. Actually, this well, it's mirrorized. This red guitar back here is the very first two string I played. It's currently set up as a six string, but yeah, Mark from Morphine. Uh, he played a two string slide bass, and he had that that guitar set up as a two string as an experiment. And when I picked that one up at his house, his home studio, I just felt like this is this is home this is what i should be doing i i can wear my influences on my sleeve and sound totally unique if i play it on a two string so wow wow that was that was the inspiration to do the two string and the three string and then uh lately though i've been uh, making some new music which we'll talk about eventually and uh rediscovering the six string guitar so when you when you were playing two string what, what are yeah. you tuned to uh well we didn't know just like with the just like with the acoustic guitar, when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was doing. When we started with the two strings, um, we just got them to a point where the strings felt like they weren't flabby and they weren't too tight, and where my voice liked the the basic root note. And it turned out it was C sharp, C sharp, G sharp. Wow. So the whole thing is C sharp, G sharp, a fifth, and then the three string has C sharp, G sharp, C sharp. And uh, it turns out as we toured around America and we're on the tour bus and had our guitars and little amps in the bus um, and the radio would be on and it would be playing some dirgy, you know, grunge explosion. Uh, it turns out our guitars were in tune with a lot of uh, grunge music, which was tuned down to C sharp. Cool. A lot of times we'd play along and be like, hey, this is in C sharp. I and sometimes I wonder if that had something to do with us bridging the gap between you know, the heavy and the fun, we kept the C sharp. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I believe Ricky Wilson from um, B-52s used to not know how he tuned, what officially his guitar was tuned to. He just do it by ear and came up with his own thing. And I yeah. remember when I was a youngster trying to learn to play Rock Lobster and just thinking, what the hell is going on there? You know, um, he's real weird because he has two strings on the, let's see, he has the two fat strings on the top and then a single or maybe it's one on the top and two. So he reaches around the whole neck and plays in this bizarre way. Uh, my brother actually plays in the same way. He plays a three string, but he separates the one string from the other two with space. So yeah, it's there. The, the world is full of wacky solutions. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes if, if you don't know the rules, it's a lot easier to break them in a creative way and come out with your own thing, which you obviously did. Absolutely. I remember when I went to college, the debate was, you know, art school or music school. And I, well, the whole time I was growing up doing those piano lessons, they wanted me to do music theory. And I always was like, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know the rules. I don't want to know what should come after an A seventh. You know, uh, I, I just want to figure it out. So yeah, from a super early age, I was very DIY with the, with musical knowledge. Yeah, yeah, cool. You know, it's funny starting out on, on piano, like like you said, you did. I started out playing uh, the organ, and uh, that TV show Fame was on TV, and I just wanted to be like that guy Bruno. I remember seeing as a kid, just going, "That one guy, just he sounds like a band. Yeah, he's got his drum machines and things. I need to do that." And that kind of that was my my entry into it all. But wow. um, so once you did learn some chords, what what some of the earlier things that you were playing on guitar? What what were the influences? 
Oh, I immediately, well, the Beatles, of course. Yeah. I mean, when I was two and a half years old, my, my older brother uh, bought Sgt. Pepper's in 1967. In uh, the Christmas season of 1967, it came out June 1st. So it was only a few months after it came out and it was brand new. And he got it, I think, as a gift from my parents, but they didn't really connect with it. But I did. Yeah. And I just dove into that record. So that whole world of that album, that visual um, kaleidoscopic, you know, just like a it's like a, a journey that you're on, uh, really influenced how I wanted to make music, how I wanted to um to, you know, take people on a, a visual journey and have different styles and all that. So when I started learning songs, you'd think I would dive in and learn Beatles songs, but I was, by that time, I'd gone out of my Beatles phase and I was into punk rock. I was into the clash and the sex pistols and Adam and the ants and all that stuff. Cool. Uh, so I was learning punk rock songs. Yeah. Uh, and at the very first time I played electric guitar in a little punk rock band, I actually took the low E string off my guitar so I could do an A bar chord. I never learned how to do six string bar chords. I do this weird bar chord. It's like a it's like a C-shaped bar chord. Yeah. So I do I do the fifth. Yep. And then the next string I mute. And then I do and then the E string is ringing. So it's like or the, I finger the E string and the B string rings. But it's it's a weird <laughs> screwed up bar chord. So I took the low E off so I could just do a, you know, flat across A. Yeah. Uh, from, from a very early age, I was cheating with the guitar. Cool, cool. And um, did you start playing in bands as a teenager or did that come later for you? Yeah, my brother, my, my brother, my buddy Dale and I, formed an alliance over our love of the clash really and the sex pistols uh we just ate those records for breakfast and we loved other stuff like walla voodoo and a wingo buingo these kind of wacky new wave uh bands so we started a band well actually my my very first band i think i was wow i want to say maybe 14 15 yeah and it was a i've talked about it before but I'll, I'll tell the story again it's such a weird band do you remember there was a thing called a vl tone it was a casio vl tone it was basically a calculator that was also a little keyboard sounds familiar yeah yeah i do remember little, that style yeah yeah a little white stick and it yeah. had little buttons um i had one of those and i got together with this guy arnie livingston who ended up being an incredibly proficient bass player like a, a jaco pastorius style star um, and he's on bass and then this, my friend Dennis Sway on uh, guitar. So that's pretty common. We didn't have a drummer, but I took the VL tone. I put it on the ground and I took one ear off of a headphone and put it on the speaker. So, and plugged it into an amp. So it would become a microphone because that'll that speakers become mics when yep, you plug them just in. Just reverse. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that was an open back speaker. So I tapped it for the drums and sang into it for the lead vocals. So I'm on the ground, completely lying out on the ground because we were just kids. We didn't have mic stands or keyboard stands or anything. And these guys are standing up and I'm on the ground and uh, tapping and, and playing the keyboard and singing at the same time. So it was that sort of, <laughs> that sort of hunger and desperation despite the extreme dorkiness of the presentation has always been a hallmark of my. <laughs> you, you know, just talking about um, headphones being microphones in reverse. I did a recording session for a guy. Oh, 
going back about 20 years ago now, and um, we'd set up all the mics. I'd, I'd exhausted my, my mic collection. Didn't have anything left for him to put down his, his guide vocal. So we grabbed a set of headphones and turned them around, and he wore them on his face this, this way, and I plugged those in. And it was – yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep. That's so great. Yep. These so he did – he did his guide vocals like that, and he was so comfortable because he was laughing so much at the ludicrousness of it, exactly, that we ended up keeping the majority of those vocals because when it came oh time God. for him to step up to the mic, he just freaked out, and that totally put him at ease. So it works. That's so amazing. I feel like I should be like, he's so no walk at Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> So you can imagine, right? Somebody who's never been in a yeah. studio before and freaking out, oh, it's time to do with vocals. Most of it. Yeah. And it gave it a telephone-like quality as well. Sure, because um, there's not a lot of room in there, so you have to kind of, yeah. yeah. I might try when we're done with this uh, interview. That's pretty interesting. Or what could be interesting is taking these headphones and clamping them on an acoustic guitar. Front and back. That would work. Wait a minute. I think I, I, think I got to go. <laughs> and thank you for your time chris uh see you next time <laughs> hey, I gotta go. too many good ideas i gotta get out of here but you know it's all about making things sit in the mix and a lot of the time the biggest mistake people make is they try and make the sounds sound too good and therefore it doesn't work in conjunction with other things uh cool. so yeah little things like that yeah no that i think that by good in that sentence this is an interesting idea it's like I've found making my home recordings that um, a lot of times I'll take guitars and severely limit their EQ uh, free, uh, you know, width, take all the low end and all the high end out and just make this like, you know, um, kind of mid range thing. I think I kind of maybe got the idea from John Lennon's guitar. Usually in, if you were ever to solo up John Lennon's rhythm guitar, it's very like just, you know, limited as far as its EQ range. Yep. And it, but it pulls that hole, you know, and it doesn't. And in the presidents, too, we the two and three string guitars were part of that idea because we wanted to not have the high strings on a guitar competing with the vocals. We wanted the vocals to have a hole in the sonic, uh, you know, palette to uh, really come through so that, you know, you could hear that I was singing about weird stuff yep. in the midst of the rock song so yeah cool cool so when you were back at 14 15 playing in this band on the floor <laughs> with the headphones yeah. on um did you guys do any gigs any shows or anything no, no. didn't get no, to that no, level. no no but i did see a band called neutral milk hotel many decades later and the keyboard player was playing a casio with his nose on the floor and i was like ah I pioneered that look. I <laughs> know <laughs> yeah, the band that, the, that played out for the first time was the band I had with my friend Dale. Um, and we just would listen to music endlessly and wrote a bunch of songs. We were kind of like a, like a slightly more punk rock wall of voodoo. Uh, it was just the two of us, a, you know, a drum machine, like a TR-808 hooked up to synthesizers. And I was the, in charge of the beats and the synths and all that stuff. And Dale played guitar and or bass, depending on the song. So, and we did one, we did a couple shows, uh, one at our high school 
<laughs> I have a picture of it somewhere somebody took from very far away. My keyboard stand is like a folding table and a bunch of textbooks. Instead of actually learning from my textbooks, I use them as keyboard stands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it takes takes me back to when I was about 14 years old. We, I opened, uh, a band I was in opened for a, a pretty big Australian group at the time called Goanna. And their keyboard player was using an, an ironing board as a keyboard stand. And I thought, you know, someone who's had commercial success and you're still dragging around an ironing board, you make do with what's there. It's a double, double, uh, you know, double use uh, piece of gear. You can iron your show shirts backstage and then uh, use it as a keyboard stand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, uh, totally unrelated, but that just reminds me. Um, there's a band here in Australia called the Baby Animals and the lead singer was married to guitar player Nuno Betancourt from Extreme. Uh, and she went, she told me this story once that she, first time she ever met Brian May, they were backstage at, um, at Wembley and Brian's walked up to her with his shirts thinking that she was like a, the maid or something at the back going, Oh, do you mind giving these an iron for me, please? <laughs> and she's like, uh, yeah, sure. But, uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not, that's not, yeah, I'm actually Nuno's fiance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will. I'll do it, but, you know. <laughs> By all reports, he is the I'll loveliest man. Yeah, she's like, I'll do it. I'll have to go home. That's where my ironing board is. <laughs> so, so, Chris, you, you said uh, it was from Sandman that gave you the idea of the, the two and three string. Yeah. Were you doing that in bands previously to Presidents? Uh, yes. You were? Not really in the band as much. Well, yeah, no, I did have a, a sort of – well, I've had this uh, sort of musical duo going since uh, my friend Dave Thiele is this uh, guy I've known since he was born. When I met him, he was about this long and and screaming. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've known him my whole life. So I met him when I was four years old. And at 10, when I was 10 and he was six, we had a band called David and the Overtones. And we still have a band. Uh, we we renamed it Creepy Stick somewhere in the 90s. And uh, it's a fantastic thing because we have no aspirations, never had any, never will. Yeah. We just, it's one of those amazing uh, musical relationships where it's not about getting good and playing. Although we did do some shows in Boston when we were both living in Boston uh, and a little bit in Seattle. But um, yeah, it's a really nice thing because during the president's time, I really appreciated it too, because everything during that time was very goal oriented and Dave and I could just get together and be weird. So in that band, I played a three quarter scale uh, classical guitar with a contact mic glued onto it that went into a PV TNT bass amp. And then Dave played this weird assortment of bongos and like cocktail drums and broken splash cymbals and stuff like that. And, and we did this kind of like, I don't know, kind of uh, almost like Middle Eastern heavy metal. <laughs> cool. And years later, I went to see Sebado, which is Lou Barlow's solo band outside of uh, Dinosaur Jr. And it blew my mind because he was playing a three-quarter scale student model classical acoustic guitar with a pickup tape to it through a PVTNT bass amp. Wow. The same weird exact setup. And what it even chances? had four strings. it had four strings too. That was the other thing. Yeah. Uh, so I went up to talk to him after the show, but I think he he has some social anxiety, and I couldn't really get any any words to come out of his mouth. <laughs> but I was like, we should be friends. <laughs> That's not that uncommon. Um, you know, I I was 
friends with the lead singer of a, a fairly well-known heavy metal band here in Australia. And um, I was living at his family home for a while there. And we'd, we'd go out to the bar or something and you'd have a lineup of guys wanted to talk to him. And mm-hmm. he was just a very shy guy. Like despite he'd get up on stage and, you know, doing all the, all the stuff. And the people would sort of come up to me and go, geez, your mate's a bit full of himself. I said, no, nah, man, he's just painfully shy and he has no idea who you are. You know him, but you know. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I guess that happens. It so, does. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen to me. I'm, I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's cool. That's cool. So tell me the lead up to forming presidents. How did that all come about? Yeah. Well, let's see. Dave Feely and I had a band called Go. Uh, he played, Dave played drums in that band and, um, I played guitar and who else, who else was in that? Oh, wait. Oh, Dave Dieterer was in that band. Yeah. From the presidents. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm going to remember all these like lineups. Yeah. Um, and so we played out a bunch. I think maybe I played a four string bass in that band too. I don't remember, but anyway, it was the two Daves and me. And we played one gig where Dave Dieterer had arranged for a, audience member to have a softball which is like a big baseball yep and dave had a mitt on stage and jason finn the future drummer for the presidents was in the audience and the audience was very few people but we were putting on just the show of a lifetime <laughs> you know we never cared how few people in fact the fewer the better in a, in some ways because it was more weird if we put on a big show yep and we're doing our thing and between songs, Dave puts the mitt on and just casually puts it up. And the softball comes flying out of the audience and just smacks right in the mitt. Doesn't say anything about it, just puts it away and just we go on to the next song. And Jason was so blown away by that little vaudevillian moment that he basically insisted that he be in the, the band, which didn't take hold immediately. Dave and I then turned, Dave Dieterer and I then turned into a duo. We went cycled through a bunch of names like the, the, um, the Dukes of pop or was that no dukes of pop was earlier we had a bunch of names i don't remember what they were but and that's when finally jason badgered dave enough that we let a at first we were like we don't we don't really want a drummer we just want the two of us in fact it was the two of us playing uh, a three string and a two string guitar through the same amp through the same cabinet so we had one amp and two guitars no way yeah any way to get things to be easier and smaller we yeah. were all about so wow we were like we want a drummer, drums. How do we get from gig to gig? You know, Jason insisted and the rest is history. So. Right. So you were doing the, the two and three string thing back then. Is there a defined, I'm playing the bass, you're playing guitar kind of yeah. role? Or is it interchangeable? Well, in, the early, in the early days, it was a little less defined. I would take solos. I had a distortion pedal and I would solo, not as much as Dave because he's better at it, but I would do these like heartfelt, weird little solos on my two string with a phase shifter and a, and a, and a rat pedal. Um, but quickly it kind of became obvious that like holding down the low end was what I was good at. And Dave was definitely good at the high end stuff. So yeah, he became more, we called his a git bass and we called mine a bass guitar. So they were, the idea was to to try to make it sound like one instrument. That's impossibly amazing. So, uh, that was kind of our goal. But yeah, as the years went on and we became a bigger and bigger, you know, rock band that played in front of tens of thousands of people at festivals and stuff, I really had to l- 
pulled down the low end and he became more of the guitar. And in fact, our sound guy, uh, Craig, used to run my instrument through an octave divider. So it would create an octave lower um, because it wasn't really sounding like a full bass. But for those big shows, we kind of needed like, you know, some cojones. <laughs> cool, cool. Now, when you guys got to a point where you could, you needed a, a guitar tech, for instance, um, was it hard to clue them into, hey, this is what we're doing? Were they just looking at you going, uh, what now? Yeah, yeah no, we, uh, I think there was maybe, yeah, a moment of head scratching, but by the time we needed a guitar tech, we were kind of a known entity. And so we actually had our friend, Mike Musburger, drummer from the Fastbacks, among many other bands, become our tech. Um, and he was really good at it. Uh, he, you know, it was good for a drummer it, to have a drummer as a guitar tech. It was good to have two and three strings because it was easier for a, a drummer to be a guitar tech when there's only five strings between two instruments. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, did, he did funny idiosyncratic things that I requested. Like I found that if you took, we changed our strings every day. Uh, so I found that if you took the strings and ran it through your mouth and then, uh, kind of, you know, put a little bit of spit on them, they wouldn't sound like new strings for the first, you know, 10, five songs. Okay, yeah. And so I made Mike spit on my strings for years. Because <laughs> 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 I was like, I'm tired of that. I don't want to do that. You, you, you have to spit on my guitar every night. So I thought you were going somewhere, else, somewhere different then because uh, I noticed that a long time ago uh, changing strings that when you hold a guitar string in, in your mouth, if that string, I'm talking about the, the thicker wound ones, if that string yeah. hits a hard surface, Star Wars noises. Choo, choo. Really? Have you got a guitar mm. string there? Yeah, I think I do. Hold on. I've got a, <laughs> a box of detritus here. Hold on, was, hold on. Yeah, man. It, it sounds like the the blasters in uh, in Star Wars. Oh, boy. Now, does it need to be a thin one or a thick one? Uh, thicker, thicker, better. Thicker, better. Okay, hold on. Here, here, here. What have I got here? I've got, I've got a whole, I've got all these are kind of left over from the, actually way left over from the days when Mark Sandman and I were trying to figure out which gauges. Okay, so which end do I put in my mouth? Any, any, just, just hold it, hold it in your teeth. No, like sort of sideways oh, seems to work better. Yeah, you get them. Choo choo. <laughs> wow, that's yes. the second. Moment from a, I had the headphones on. I was negotiating with Han Solo, and now I've got a, a, a blaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I remember um, stumbling on that and just thinking, this is the coolest thing. How do I mic up my head so people can hear this? <laughs> it is awesome. Actually, it's making me remember. I did some, uh, for, you know, occasionally I lose the ability to write songs, but I still record. And there was a big period in the early '90s when I could not write songs, but I took a a coat hanger, a wire coat hanger, and tied thread to it like a loop and then put that on a microphone and then hit it with a fork. And it sounds like the biggest gong you've ever, it's like, oh, cool. idea. it's like a dangling uh, wire. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Oh, sweet. So Chris, with the, the tuning thing, I, I just sprung to mind here and having a uh, not quite guitar and bass roles, but still guitar and bass roles. Yeah. Was your, what did you call it? A bass guitar? Bass guitar, yeah. Bass, was your bass guitar tuned down an octave lower than the gu guitar bass? The good bass? No, good no, bass? we were the same, same. same octave. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's why our sound guy would uh, sometimes 
uh, octave shift for big shows. He would octave shift just yeah. to get a little growl in there. Yeah. I think I've seen you playing in SG as well. Strung yeah. Like yeah. Epiphone. I had a deal with Epiphone for many years. They would give us uh, guitars, whatever we wanted. It was pretty great. I went through a lot of guitars. Cool. Uh, when, when we were first, there was a funny moment when we were first um, forging that alliance with Epiphone. Kara Hogan was the name of the rep and she came to a show and she's like, okay, yeah. She's like, good old girl, you know, talking the accents from somewhere in the Midwest. Now she's like, okay, now we're going to do this deal. We're going to get you SGs and you these guitars. And okay, fine. Now, now do y'all like to smash them? Cause we can, <laughs> she's like, do y'all like to smash them? Cause we can get you a new one every day. <laughs> like, that's not incentive you know, right there to take up guitar yeah, smashing. I don't know what it is. I know. I did smash. I've done that a few times, but they were for monumental moments like our last show or, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. Our quote unquote last show, our first last show. <laughs> <laughs> we have an artist over here in Australia called John Farnham, and he's been doing that last tour now for, you know, 20 odd years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a way to go. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you never know. Yeah. I mean, could be. So did you guys uh, start generating a lot of interest with labels and the like early in the piece or were you guys at it for a while before people started to take notice? Well, I think, what was it? It was, uh, it was summer of 94. So Jason joined in the December, of, in December of 93. And then we did a bunch of gigs through the, and then at the early part of 94, I actually, so, he, okay, here we go. Jason joined in 93. Soon after, like January, February, we went and made a demo tape with Barrett Jones at the Laundry Room, the studio where Dave Grohl and Barrett would make the first Foo Fighters record eventually. And we did that in like 13 hours, just made an album and then made cassettes and we sold them at shows and we sold them at the Comet, which was the bar that Jason worked at. Then I got hired to be in Beck's band. So I took off for two US tours and uh wasn't around but the wow. cassette the cassettes were steadily selling at the comet and jason i remember I, I was i was deep into the second tour with beck in and i was in portland i remember and jason called me and he's like you gotta just come home because this is this is catching fire without us doing any shows which maybe might have been a good strategy kind of scarcity model yeah right yeah <laughs> When we got back together, we just played as many shows as we possibly could. We're like, let's push the envelope. Let's see how many shows we can do. And this is the post grunge landscape where everybody's looking for the next Nirvana. You know, who is it? So it, on a Tuesday at the Crocodile, the place would be packed just because people were curious about music. So we took full advantage of that, built a fan base. And then uh, one show we did late in the summer of 94, it turns out there were major labels in the crowd because there was a festival in town uh, or a, a Seattle-centric festival called Bumbershoot, which was happening that weekend. And all these reps came to our show. And I didn't know anybody important was at the show, thank goodness. That's because probably a good just, thing, yeah. I just did my usual, you know, shambolastic <laughs> rock and roll explosion. And then I, as I remember it the next day or that week or a couple days later, we had seven major label record offers to, to wow. Move. Yeah. So it was like a, it was fast. And it's funny cause I never slogged away in the trenches on tour. You know, I went from being in the presidents and playing bars in Seattle and stuff to joining Beck's band and being on a, well, a van at first and then a tour bus 
And then we got our own tour bus when I got signed. So I, I never, <laughs> I never struggled uh, on that level. I struggled in the DIY trenches, you know, living life and writing music my whole life. But then yeah. when it came to the bridge over into the pro world, I just like stepped on a moving train. Cool. Now, what did you do with Beck? Were you a bass player, guitar player? Uh, both. I was kind of a uh, jack of all trades. I was the, you know, uh, what, the fourth wheel. <laughs> Although you knew the fourth wheel. <laughs> I was the second and fourth wheel. No, so there was, uh, yeah, Joey Warnker was the drummer, fantastic drummer, just incredible. Um, Dave Gomez, bass. Beck played guitar and synthesizer. I played bass, guitar, and ran another synthesizer and a sampler. So it was, yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, it's a whole story, you know, but uh, he uh, he and I for a bit there were real kindred spirits. And I lived with him because I was the only band member not from L.A. So we lived together. We four tracked together. We drove around L.A. When he had a little radio thing to do, I would accompany him on banjo. And and uh, yeah, it was it was a really cool time because it's almost like I got to go to fame school and be next to Beck in his like storm of transition and then i got to have my own so it's like i graduated from fame school and uh, beck was my teacher <laughs> awesome awesome yeah at what point did you start writing songs for yourself Ooh, like almost right away yeah uh, yeah i found that playing clash songs on a five-string guitar wasn't as uh, fulfilling as uh, i'd hoped so yeah i started right away really inspired by wall of voodoo wall of voodoo was kind of like and Tom Waits. Tom Waits really inspired me. There's, again, visual vocals, like uh, painting with words. Uh, so I started trying to do that kind of stuff um, and kind of Western, twangy, punky, weird songs and with Dale. So that was when I started writing. That was like, ooh, I was probably six, 17, 16 or 17 when I started writing songs. And weirdly, uh, we'll get to this, I know, but I'm doing new music now. And some of the songs I'm working on now are me resurrecting songs from that era and wow. um, finishing them. Yeah. Turns out, turns out under my fake English accent and all the terrible synthesizers were good songs. <laughs> you, you were singing in a fake English accent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was so bad. Cause I was into, I was also, Dale wasn't as much into this stuff, but I was into like English new wave and uh, you know, kind of art, English art punk. And uh, so, yeah, I, I have the recordings. No yeah. one will ever hear them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it's funny that, um, <clears throat> that you've ended up doing the family-friendly, I'm avoiding saying kids' music, um, family-friendly music, because <clears throat> it's not that dissimilar to your music from Presidents, just no. slightly different subject matter, a bit more kid-friendly. Yeah, well, here's how I described it. Like the presidents, what made the chemistry of the presidents work was innocence and innuendo rubbing up against each other. The friction between a song about a kitty and peaches and, you know, dune buggy, innocent stuff up against sexual innuendo made it fly, I think, uh, at least lyrically. And so... What, but what happened then was we got signed kind of based on that tension. And then I couldn't repeat that tension. It was sort of a, a of the moment kind of thing. Like I wrote a bunch of songs like that, but it was, I, I like to say, it's kind of like a monkey doing a painting with its eyes closed and it sells for $5 million. And everyone's like, monkey, monkey, paint more paintings. And the monkey's like, I don't know what I did. 
my eyes were closed. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so Casper was me removing the sexual innuendo part and keeping the innocence part and discovering that, oh, that friction was specifically what I was having a hard time with. The innocent core was definitely like very natural to me. So that's why I made 19 records in 11 years and played as many shows as I did. And because of this, you know, this, I found this voice that was not allowed to happen before that because I kind of didn't take those songs, like really innocent, simple songs um, as seriously. Uh, I didn't think there was, you know, value in them. But when I found, oh, there's an audience specifically for this, parents and kids, then they, then it had a purpose and then it could come out and it, it just, man, came out with a vengeance. Wow. So you say 19 records, is that collectively between presidents and as Casper or just as no, Casper? Just, just Casper. Ni 19 records with about 20 songs on each record. And then were you yeah. touring that at schools and things? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I didn't really tour. I did some one-off. Actually, I came to Australia. I did the Sydney Festival one time. Cool. I, I went, I went all the way to Australia for two sets. <laughs> yes. But they, they baked in like five days of chill out time on either side. So I, I just explored Sydney and had a great time. I mean, side, side note, we love us. I mean, in the presidents, we just loved Australia. I love Australia. It's one of my favorite places in the whole world. I call Alaska the Australia of North America for a bunch of reasons. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got a similar like there's a lot of space. People are clustered in, you know, uh, along the coastline generally. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a warmth and a curiosity and like a interest. People are interested in other people because that's sort of the most important aspect of living in a potentially deadly environment. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> other people um anyway I, yeah i mean australia is the best australia but alaska is a close second so cool, uh, cool. but yeah uh well i'm sorry i forgot what we were talking about uh, uh oh, yeah. a casper yep yeah now i didn't really tour it in a traditional sense i went to new york to play some shows but mostly i just served the northwest like washington oregon a little idaho here and there and um that was another like you know thing about the presidents we toured a lot um, I didn't really, touring was hard for me. I couldn't sleep on the bus. Uh, I couldn't eat really well. It was, it would wear out my nervous system. I didn't really even know it at the time. I was partying a little too much, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, I made a conscious decision with Casper to just like, keep it in my backyard, have it be part of my life, but not like take over my life. So sure, and it sure. worked well. I ended up squeezing in 1,247 shows in eight years of performing. So with Casper, so that's busy. pretty good. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I reckon it would be a real buzz to play to um, to kids uh, who would just be losing their their shit over over these songs. I actually work at a special school. I teach uh, special needs kids, and cool. uh, when we have the the end of term concerts, just to see these kids just losing it is is amazing. So I, I imagine it'd be a similar kind of thing, you know, um, as well as having yeah, the parents. I used to like to say that they're the they're the greatest drunk punk rock crowd ever. You know, like they're so random and weird and happy and surreal and yeah, fantastic audience, really. Awesome. Awesome. Chris, tell us about a bit about some of those guitars behind you there, man. What do you what do you got? 
Yeah. What have I got? What have I got? Uh, well, I guess Buddy down here is the acoustic version of Butterscotch. Butterscotch is the Casper Baby Pants guitar that I played all 1,247 shows on. It's sort of my Lucille or my trigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, three strings, I see. Yep. Three strings. I decided to go three strings with Casper because it gave me just a little more harmonic choices because I performed solo. I had a trio for a little while with Casper. Uh, with a couple of friends, but I decided to go at it alone because I could be really uh, fluid with what was going on in the room. If a kid did something weird or said something weird or interrupted me or, um, you know, caused some sort of disturbance, I could follow it and uh, and be back in beat on, you know, uh, you know, really sharp and together with one guitar. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. So butter. Butterscotch is a Harmony Hollywood with uh, gold foil pickups, and it's got this really cool um, fader knob between the pickups. Oh, so you nice. Can, yeah, you can fade, kind of customize the sound a little bit, um, which is important because the pickups are a little brittle and funky, so it was nice to have a little control. Uh, the red one, of course, is the, the Mark Sandman original two-string, which I'm now doing as a six-string for this new music that I'm making because it's got kind of a kind of a broke ass bluesy vibe. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is the Kawaii two string I played on the debut record. Um, this is just a three string silver tone with a uh, pickup in it. This one's really good for like, I run it through a fuzz pedal and just barely play it with my thumb and it's just beautiful harmonics and distortion. It has a pickup in it that I got to recommend to anybody who's looking to get a pickup for a sound hole guitar like this. It's called a Lawrence A100, I think. It's the lowest um, on the totem pole of these Lawrence pickups. It's the yeah. cheapest one. It's an amazing pickup because if you put it in a guitar that's bassy, you get bassy. If you put it in a guitar that's mid-rangey, you get mid-rangey. If it's trebly and crisp, you get that. Yep. It's a very transparent pickup. And you can you can shift it around in the sound hole too to kind of play with uh, which strings dominate and that kind of stuff. So that's cool. Um, and this guy here is just an acoustic version of butterscotch that I used to use um, at to do like, you know, I'll go on a radio show or do a promotional thing on TV or something. And I just bring that instead of bringing butterscotch and a amplifier and stuff like that. Um, this guitar is the one I played with Beck, the one I played that bow, 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 bow. Oh, cool. I, I didn't play on the recording, but yeah. this is the guitar I played live um with him this when well it's quick story of how we got together when uh we met and then he invited me to play on one foot in the grave which is being recorded down in olympia and he wanted me to play slide guitar i did not own a slide i did not own a slide guitar and i said of course yes i can play slide guitar because that's how you get your first job you lie <laughs> so i i went to the music store i bought this guitar i bought this slide and I went and got on a bus and I went to Olympia and I walked off the bus with my guitar and my slide and I walked to Calvin Johnson's house and I walked into the basement and I walked into the control room and I walked into the recording room and they said, play slide on this. And I'd never heard the song. And I just pretended to be a slide guitar player. And a couple of days later, I got the job. So cool. So, yeah. So I've, I've had this guitar ever since. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's real kind of that Hershey bar pickup is real kind of warm and fat and not a lot of definition. In fact, Gloria Alvarez, who did sound for Beck when I was with Beck, had a real hard time with that guitar. She couldn't get it to be bright. And 
he, she ended up insisting that I buy a diff, uh, an SG or something, a, a more kind of articulate guitar. So it was a little controversial. <laughs> now this guitar is what? A Harmony Broadway. This is one of those cases where you go to a music store and you pick up a guitar and you play two chords. I just picked it up and I went, I'll take it. Yes. I just like, it is perfect. Yep. It's, it's kind of woody and warm, but also bright and crisp. Um, and the added weirdness with this guitar is that I used to own this exact same guitar. The president's song Candy was, what was it? That song, that sound is the sound I had on the four track original because I owned this same guitar in Boston in the early 90s. Uh, I was helping a friend move and they're like, do you want this guitar? It was in a case. I didn't even see it. I said, yeah, sure. I took it home and it was this exact model and I used it for years for tracking. And then I don't know what happened to it. I don't remember selling it or giving it away. It's just all of a sudden I, I didn't have it. I don't know yeah. what happened. I was moving a lot. I don't know where it went. So then I walk into a local music store, pick up this guitar, go, I'll take it because I could hear that same sound. So I like to pretend that it is the same guitar uh -huh. and that it found me. Do you so think that's there's any chance that it could be the same one? Yeah, it totally could be. It's same same level of condition. It was kind of, you know, pockmarked and, and funky. So could be. I wish I could find a picture of me from that time with this guitar, but I didn't take any pictures in the 90s <laughs> or early 90s. So anyway... I'm just going to go ahead and say that that guitar found me. And that guitar is like the cornerstone acoustic guitar sound of this new music I'm making, which we'll talk about eventually. Okay. Then over here, I've got, whoa, baby. I've got my only remaining Epiphone uh, gift from Epiphone, my only remaining, uh, you know, promotional guitar, this uh, Paul McCartney style violin bass. Yeah. With with weird mismatching knobs. And my son, Augie, had this guitar for like eight years. And Augie might be watching, actually. I sent him a link. So, hi, Augie. How's it going? Um, he had this forever. It used to be covered with gold paint and stickers and all kinds of stuff. He stripped that all off and then he put these weird collage bits on. So, I'm keeping those on as a, uh, a reminder that this guitar has uh, cycled from father to son, much like that old one that my dad had and my sister had. So this is this is our family's version of the old uh, uh, classical acoustic. And this just sounds fantastic. It's just so fat and clear and harmonic and flat wound strings, you know, just that classic uh, beetle bass thing that's gotta be part of any arsenal. Cool. And uh, guitar wise, I think that's it. I think we've, we've gone around the horn. Nice, nice. Yeah. Are you, are you much of an amp collector? Do you? Oh, yeah. No. Well, I have one. I have an Ampeg uh, GVT GVT fifteen one twelve. I have two of them. I used them live, so I got a second one uh, as a redundancy in case I had a you know failure at a live show. But uh, yeah, I just love this Ampeg. It's part. It's tube and. Sounds great. And uh, what I love about these Ampeg amps is the tone knobs aren't um, just filters. They're boosts. Cool. So when you, turn up, when you turn up the mid all the way up, you're actually getting more signal to the preamp. So you, get, you can kind of distort those frequencies. 
uh-huh. little bit with the, right, with the right pickup, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love the way the tone knobs work on it because you, you have a much bigger range of, of tone. Yeah, because that is right. Most amps have got a, a passive tone control that just take away, but yeah, be able to boost. Is, that's nice. So <laughs> when you guys um, in the president started doing bigger shows, did you graduate from using the, the PV uh, bass amp to something else? Yeah, although I can't say enough about PV. PV is an underrated brand. I, I like PV amps because I think they're really like articulate and clear and great for recording. Um, but yeah, I loved um, custom amps, the, the tuck and roll. The, like, yeah, the that. upholstered looking things. Yeah, so I immediately bought a big from uh, this guy, Joe Bass, who was kind of a legendary bass player here in Seattle, Posies and a bunch of other stuff. I bought his... Um, tuck and roll uh head and cabinet and that was my and it was gold too because i was wearing gold boots at the time uh, spray painting everything gold was my thing that guitar i played with beck i spray painted it gold i spray painted that bass gold you know show me anything and i'll spray paint it gold <laughs> cool cool yeah even though down to uh here this is my uh this is my boss super overdrive that i've had since i was probably 16. wow I think it was like first First pedal I ever bought. Can't say enough about Boss, man. Uh, they do not break. Yeah. And I and look, I spray painted it gold. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's seen some use, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. And I still, I just used it today. Yeah. Cool. So, things never go out of style around here. I guess. I'm talking of pedals. Uh, were you much of a pedal guy back in the day or, or now? I, I go through phases. Uh, when I was doing the Casper thing, I was not a pedal guy because there was really no distortion. Yep. Although for the very last Casper album, I think it was the last one, there's a song called Supersonic Motorcycles that I wrote about uh, my neighbor from West Seattle who would uh, warm up his giant farting motorcycle for like 20 minutes every time he wanted to take it out right outside my studio. Like if he was going to go for a ride, I couldn't record or do anything. So I wrote a song about how his motorcycle made me nervous and I needed a fuzz guitar. So I went out and bought this thing, the fuzz stang. Cool. And it's fantastic because it has an attack, which is a filter, like a uh, cutoff. Um, so you can set it so that you can be remarkably distorted. And when you stop playing dead air completely. And oh, then, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really cool effect. And so I used it for that one song and um, I've been using it a lot ever since i love this the boss tremolo just simple warm uh great tremolo sound this i had way back in the day and i actually just bought this from reverb.com but uh it's a basically the same it's a dod or dod uh wah slash volume pedal yep. so you can switch it switch it from a wah to a volume i like it as a wah because it's got an, a just a real cool range it doesn't get so high and crispy as a crybaby uh, the high upper ranges of a crybaby, I find like just useless and not musical to me. Yeah. Um, this is a pedal I bought in Japan, but lost track of, and again, bought rebought on reverb. It's so cool. It's an Ottawa, a Gaia tone WR three. Cool. So it's that. It's really weird when you put keyboards through it. Very cool for synthesizers and stuff like that. Yep. And then, Little buddy. Yep. Uh, that's it. That's all I've got right now. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you, you yeah. record all your own stuff at home these days? 
Yeah, yeah. I've just yeah. got a little uh, proto. I've got a little M box and a laptop from when did I get that? Two thousand seven or so. Yeah. <laughs> old. Or no, no. I don't know. More like I think it's like ten years old. But this laptop that I have, I'll show you what it looks like. Just a little laptop and an M box sitting there. Um, it uh, that laptop doesn't do anything. It doesn't talk to the you the world. It doesn't uh, no apps. Just runs Pro Tools. And as a precaution, I lured a, a little tech guy away from the Mac store one day and had him go out and get me a clone of this entire setup. So if it crashes, I have a clone that can step in. Because uh, that would it, basically after Pro Tools 9, when you get to Pro Tools 10, all the plugins become inactive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're I, still I running just, 9. I'm still running nine and it works great. I use Pro Tools more like a glorified tape deck, like with with editing uh, capabilities. I don't do a lot of software. I don't do any software plugins or anything in that box. I have over here, though, I have a Yamaha electric piano. I love the action of this thing. Um, and then I run on my on my uh, iPad. Whoa, baby. I run apps like a Moog synthesizer. Yeah. So I'm a super minimalist. So I, I, you know, I probably should own an actual Moog synthesizer, but the fact that they all fit right here on this tiny little iPad is just, it's too delicious for my minimalist sensibilities to pass yeah, up. Yeah. There's uh, something to be said about minimalism. I think um, if you have, I've heard it called option paralysis, where if you've got too many options, you're sitting there just trying to work out. Uh, so as an example, when I had a four track and an Atari computer, and one synthesizer, one drum machine. I had five kick drum sounds. I, in 30 seconds, would decide which kick drum sound would be right. Then as I got into the whole Pro Tools rabbit hole and I had 5,000 kick drums, all of a sudden I'm spending days trying to decide on what the right kick drum for this track is. And you lose sight of yeah. making music. And yeah, have you found that with the minimalism? Oh yeah, and with just the technology, um, the, when I first made the switch from eight-track cassette, I started out doing four-track cassettes, and then I went to eight-track cassettes, and then I went to Pro Tools in like two thousand one, and uh, that was my—I was completely paralyzed by all the choices. It was crazy. But what that told me is that I needed to focus on vision. You know, if you go into it with vision, then you're just looking for the solution that will support your vision versus kind of being buffeted around by a billion choices. So it was a nice invitation from the technology to focus on my intention. Like, what yeah. did I want to do? Yeah. So yeah. that's what I took out of that. Cool. Now, I had a bit of a poke around looking at your website when I first made contact with you. And I saw an interview and you were talking about um, how you write, record something, and then you shelf it for six months or so and come back and have a little mute party, I think you called it. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. tell us about that process. Yeah, that was really Casper baby pants related more than what I'm doing now, but um yeah, so on the Casper stuff, ultimately I wanted the Casper songs to be very um clear and minimal again. Um but to the for an effect, I wanted the kids to be able to really hear the vocals, really hear the story. So I didn't sing with a lot of affect, you know, I didn't go, "Hey kids, how's it going?" or whatever. I kind of keep it flat because I want the content to be king in that environment. 
So by the same token, I would want the music to be very simple, but I didn't want to limit myself in the early stages of recording and be like, oh no, I can't put guitar on that or I can't put keyboards or whatever. I just say, you know what? I'm going to put everything on that feels good and just go nuts and make it way too thick. But then I'm going to enjoy that just on my own for a while. Like, yeah, this song is, you know, just so much going on. And then eventually when it comes, you know, push comes to shove and it's like, all right, this song's going on the album or getting closer to being considered. That's when I have to, you know, really decide what's going to stay and what's going to go. But having had the messy times, which what's nice about that is I might keep the piano, but only keep like two measures of it or only keep it for a, a second or just for one part, this slide guitar happens thereby creating little uh, like events in the song that the listener can look forward to like, Oh, there's that little slide guitar, but it never happens again, you know, yeah. but it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that really if I hadn't allowed myself to be messy on the, on the uh, early side of the process. So uh, it, was, it was Nancy Wilson who came up with the, uh, the um, at least. Oh, Oh, Chris just dropped out. That's okay. That's okay. Am I still live? I'm still live. Yes, I am. And he's back just like that. <laughs> what, that was weird. What happened there? I, I I don't know, but that's okay. Like I said that, to you before, the, the whole train wreck thing. Yeah, that's why people tune in. And I knew you just hit the button and you'd be back. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. it was my friend Pete Droge uh, told me that uh, Nancy Wilson from Heart came up with the terminology mute party. And so that's what I do. I have a mute party and uh, see how much I can get rid of before, uh, to make the song come alive. Cool. So, Chris, um, I did mention to you before that it's first thing in the morning. I've had a couple of these under my belt. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to let you talk while I uh -huh. take a break for a, a minute. Um, last question relating to Casper Baby Pants before I move on to your new music. Um, the name Casper Baby Pants. I did see a little thing about that. Could you enlighten the guests how you came up with that name? Yeah, and I'll do it real slow. Really slow. So, yeah. Stretch it out. I won't be long. You'll see me come back. Yeah. I made up the name Casper Baby Pants. No, I can't do it that slow. I made up the name Casper Baby Pants a long time before the kids thing happened. I was in that I was in a band with Mark Sandman playing that guitar that I'm pointing at and tickling uh, as a two-string. Uh, and we were called Supergroup. Mark played a, a three-string slide guitar. I played the two-string, and then we had a rotating uh, drummer situation. And uh, I had been making cassette tapes under the name Casper for years with two A's, uh, just experimental weird stuff. When I lost the ability to write songs, I would just make these cassettes of, of surreal chunks and uh, called it Casper. And then when I was with Mark playing uh, in that band Supergroup, I used to wear a pair of hand-knitted baby's pants on my head that I found in a bin at a food co-op like free uh, winter clothing for people in need. And I was in need. <laughs> so I got this hand-knitted pair of baby's pants, put them on my head, and the kids in my neighborhood in Boston started calling me baby pants. And then the people at the shows started calling me baby pants. So I took Casper, which already existed, and baby pants and put them together. So I was Casper baby pants in 1991 with Mark Sandman in Supergroup. Then 17 years later or so, uh, yeah, 17 years later, I made my first kid's record, and I'm thinking, what do I call it? Do I use my name? Do I make up a band name like I've usually done? And all of a sudden, I remembered, I'm already Casper Baby Pants. It's a foreshadowing. I'll just own it and be it. 
so yeah, it was a, it was a breadcrumb from 17 years earlier. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> you can't choose your own nickname. I always say that. No, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 Part of, I chose Casper, but the baby pants was chosen for me. So yeah, there's, there's a, a local guy oh, about 20 years ago. And he considered himself a bit of a hard man, and he, he really wasn't. And he he started telling people, "Call me Flesh Kite." And I was like, "Okay, okay. Fleshlight." <laughs> if anybody knows what a flashlight is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> you can't choose your own nickname. I was such a skinny kid, and um, over here, I told you I'm from the Gold Coast. Um, yeah. Surf life saving was a, a big part of growing up here. Nippers, they called it, where you do all the Baywatch for kids, I guess, you know, like learning to be a lifeguard. And um, I was such a skinny kid that the trainer used to call me pretzel. And uh, that, that that stuck for a while. And um, yeah, yeah you, you, can't, you can't choose your own nickname. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, crisp, crispy crackers when I was a little kid in like third grade. And then in college, I was super uh, consistent with napping. At from like three o'clock to three thirty, and I actually still nap from like three ish to three. That's a good time to have a nap. It's a great time. Yeah. I do a little meditation thing now. It's a little more focused. But uh, my nickname in college was Captain Nappy. So, yeah, not the nappy like a diaper. The nappy yeah. like a nappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. So, Chris, new music. What are you working on? Oh yeah, so I'm doing stuff under my own name. Uh, it's this kind of fuzzy, loopy trancy psychedelic um poppy grungy abstract groovy shit wow <laughs> those are the best adjectives i can use to describe it it's basically i rediscovered my love of synthesizers i when i was you know in that band with dale back in the day i was in charge of all the synths and i loved i loved synthesizers and i completely being in a rock band, you know, they took a back seat for a long time. And I'm just rediscovering how much I love playing with those sounds and, and especially how they reverberate against an acoustic guitar like that old one of mine. So it's like acoustic guitar and fuzz and synthesizers and drum loops. It's very much me just, I'm doing it solo, everything solo. I want it to kind of feel a little more like something, you know, cooked up by one mad scientist brain in isolation rather than have it feel like a group. I thought at first I was going to give it to real drummers to play on, but I don't want it to sound real. I want it to sound kind of from another world. So yeah, I have my first record out. It's called I Am Not Me, and it's on my website for free, chrisbaloo.org, or you can get it on Spotify or any of the streaming services. But if you want to download it to have, you can do that at chrisbaloo.org. And my second album is coming out. It's called Soul Unfolded, and it's coming out on Friday. Today's Monday. Is it Monday where you are? It's Tuesday here. Tuesday. I'm from the so future. Would you like the lotto results? It's coming out earlier in Australia. So <laughs> <laughs> it's coming out, yeah. And then as far as the future goes, I mean, I cannot. This is another volcanic eruption for me because it's another layer of discovering my true self. Like getting back into being loud and distorted, but also incorporating a full spectrum, not just the rock band with guitar, bass, drums, but getting to be loud, but use everything, strings, horns, synthesizers, pianos, uh, one string, two string, three string guitars, <laughs> as I say in Back Porch. Um, so yeah, it's really like the full spectrum and it has caused another volcano of songs to just... Well, that's I awesome. 
Yeah, I think I'm sitting on something like 75 songs that are unreleased right now um, that are almost finished. So I'm going to do two records a year as Chris Ballou for the foreseeable future, uh, July and January. So every July and January for the next uh, bunch of years, you're going to get a new slab of of tunes. That's cool. So you, you said that, that you're retired. I can't remember if we were saying that off yeah, or yeah. when we were live, but has that taken the pressure off? And do you think that has inspired the the new volcano of, of songs? Yeah. With, totally. Because that would be I a hard thing. You, you mentioned that you, you went through a time where you couldn't write and that would be the pressure. It's like, I need to repeat this, you know? So yeah. with that weight lifted, it's like, ah, oh, I hear this thing in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I loved about Casper was there was no, I was free of the adult culture of cool. You know, I'm not competing in that race. Now I'm making music for adults. And it's funny, I'm kind of managing sort of expectations in my own mind about that dynamic of like, you know, being heard in the just like maelstrom of new music that comes out all the time. And I really fall back on this idea that gives me peace of mind, which is that I say to myself, I'm just making chairs. It's kind of like a retired person who has a wood shop and they just make chairs. They're not trying to make the the chairs that are going to take over the world. They're just making chairs because it's something to do with your hands uh, in retirement uh, that makes you feel good. So it's funny because I kind of feel like, yeah, I'm retired. I don't have like big aspirations and I'm doing this as a hobby, like I'm making chairs, but I'm getting to do my craft that I've already built all this time, you know, focusing I get to build on my uh, craft, but I'm free of competition. I'm free of uh, pressure. I can be whatever I want. I think a lot about Brian Eno in this phase. I think like, you know, he made ambient records. He made pop records. He made weird arty records. He's an innovator. He's got a wide spectrum of interests. And I kind of want to slide into those shoes. I kind of want to be available for whatever, you know, of whatever inspiration floats by uh, in my brain. Yeah. So I, I imagine that it would be a, a case of the first thing that pops into your head, which is usually the right thing, um, is what you would go with without having to analyze it and go, is that what's cool at the moment? Is, uh, you know, um, am I offending somebody? It's like, no, this is what that jukebox in my head is telling me. Yeah. I'm going to go with it. Yeah. Is that is that what you're finding? Yeah, it is. It's it's really uh, interesting for me because I'm writing songs from a different uh, starting place, really. Used to be like, well, predominantly it would be that I'd have a, a sort of a vision, like like Lump, for instance, is a vision of a, a weird vision, I don't know why, of a woman in a housecoat in a river in the Amazon rainforest with piranhas like not eating her because they don't know what to make of her. And she's overweight and spaced out. And <laughs> again, first thought, that's my first thought. So I just described that in the lyrics to Lump and everybody used to say, what's Lump about? I'd be like, it's about exactly what I'm singing about. There's no poetic license happening, It's that's it. But now it's interesting, it's different. I'm The, the content of the songs I'm writing now, I'm really r- trying to explore like, consciousness, existence, uh, science, quantum physics, um, the planets, uh, perception, um, just all kinds of stuff that's like big and cosmic. And so I'm using a lot, I'm, I'm kind of coming up with music more often first, uh, and then I improvise. I just 
you know, spill out whatever on like a bunch of tracks. And then I listen and I find like little melodic bits that I like, or maybe little keywords that fit with the music. And then it grows instinctively. It's weird. It's not like I sit down and try to be clever. It's more like I'm just a radar. In fact, I have a song on that first record called Radar Mine. And it's kind of about that. It's like, I just sort of open my radar. And instead of trying to grab ideas out of desperation, like like it's a ghost that's going to disappear. I'm just waiting patiently for the idea to drop in. Now, if it doesn't drop in, then I I throw that song in a different folder called Instrumentals, uh, which I'll crack open later and might hear from a different way. But I, I also get off I get off the train if the train stalls. You know, like if it, if it's continuing to be inspiring and like oh yeah this could be the chorus and oh I'm writing the verses now and here we go okay it needs a bass then you know i just keep going but if at some point i'm just like eh, i don't know what to do now i just stop and yep. and put it away yep. so in that way yeah that's where you relieve pressure because the pressurized version would be no i got to keep i got to keep scrapping and figure this thing out because it might be a hit yeah you know? yeah it's uh, funny oh, to to hear um demos of famous songs um first one that springs to mind for me is one by you too and that song, when you listen to the end product, it <clears throat> lyrically, it all just seems like a complete story, a package, like he sat down and wrote this this thing in, in one hit. But when you go back and listen to them jamming and coming up with the ideas, he knows what vowels go there, and he's singing those in the demos. And right. it's almost like he's singing nonsense sounds, but it's the same vowels as what made the end. And I've got a friend... Um, that I've recorded many times and he does the same thing. He just makes up, mm -hmm. sings vowels and people start to hear words in those vowels. And he's like, okay, yep, that's, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and now I do it a little more silly. I sing just silly stuff. Like, you know, like pancake water coming on down the mountain. I've never seen cassettes inside the rabbits, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I'll just do that kind of stuff. That's yeah. kind of, that's keeps it fun for me because uh, I just make up weird shit. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Weirder the better. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to shout out to the, the folks in the uh, that are watching live that, that might be in the chat room. I haven't been keeping an eye on the questions. There's a lot of just talks and shout outs, and I like to give my guests my attention uh, for at least the first hour there. So if anybody has any questions, even if you've posted them before, please post again. I'll come back to those uh, to save me scanning through. But um, while that happens i'm gonna ask you chris well how about while that happens i get another glass of water you do it you do it go for it man go for it yeah i'll, I'll keep on right. talking i'll be wrong front no. yeah yeah i will keep on talking very slowly i'm gonna show everybody this beautiful guitar right here we're talking about guitars this is a 1973 sg now i'm a, a 1973 vintage myself and this has been rotting under my friend's bed for about 30 years and I texted him to ask, hey, man, have you still got that that guitar? And he pulled out this photo. He, he photographed this guitar, which was absolutely rotting. And I pulled all the hardware off, soaked it in uh, white vinegar to get all the rust off, lubricated it all, uh, buffed the top of it to get a mirror-like sheen after, he, after it had turned into absolute crap. Um, and... Funnily enough, I, my friend who owns this used to play in a band for me, with me, um, and I wouldn't let him play this guitar because it wouldn't stay in tune. And now that I've pulled it out and 
restored it. It is absolutely beautiful. And um, I messaged him to say, you're not getting this back in a hurry. And he's not. It sounds really cool. And Chris is back. Chris, have you seen my my beautiful SG? It's not mine. It's not mine. It's <clears throat> let me just change the, the view there. Uh, I was just telling the story that it's a 1973 vintage, just like me. And uh, this has been rotting under my friend's bed for about 30 years, and I've just recently cleaned it up and restored it. And um, wow, what are those are those humbuckers? What's in a mini P9? humbuckers? Mini humbuckers. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's probably better. I'm excited. I love the color too, the coloring. Um, my son, Augie, who's hopefully watching. Hi, Augie. He builds and designs guitars and he's really good at it. Eventually, everyone will be clamoring for an uh, original AW Blue guitar. But right now, he's building uh, telecasters for a bunch of people, like custom telecasters. Nice. And I'm having him build one for me that's going to be a replica of the George Harrison uh, Telecaster from Get Back, which that's that's something I don't have in my arsenal. is a is a real kind of clear, like high end, crisp guitar that stays yeah. in tune. The red one I love, but it's got weird hot spots in the pickup, and and intonation is impossible. This this bridge is just a joke. Oh yeah, <laughs> I made a pewter. <laughs> so so Chris is there much recognition in the real world? Do you go out and like you go to a fruit store and people come up to you with a, a peach and go, yeah. does that happen? Mm, mm -mm. No, no, not, not at all. I mean, it might happen in a music store like or a guitar shop. Um, that might be where somebody goes, eh. yeah. but um, no, nah, you know, part of it is I haven't been out of the house for two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I go to the grocery store, you know, with the mask on, and there's a couple of the people that work at the grocery store that know who I am, and they they do that. They they actually do hold up a peach and go, you know, they're on sale today. It's funny. That's one thing with the whole mask wearing thing. Um, almost exactly a year ago, I did a show <clears throat> up in Brisbane, uh, and I play in a, a group called Absolutely Eighties, which is the lead singers from a whole bunch of iconic Australian groups and and one of the singers at that show um was the lead role apart from her being a pop star uh was a lead role in a very big um uh, tv series called sons and daughters uh when i was a kid so the recognition rate for ali walking down the street is just like oh yeah. my god this. um so i recall walking through the city with her and she had the mask on and everything and she'd flown up from Melbourne where they were in serious lockdowns. She couldn't believe that people were walking around without masks, but I could just see the relief that she could walk down the street and not have people point and stare, you know, 40 years after the show was a hit. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, did a, I did a tiny bit of TV here in Seattle and it's funny. I mean, even a local show, um, I was a, a judge on like a star search or kind of a America's got talent kind of show. And even that little show, I could tell people were like, you know, reacting to me differently. It's funny when we were the uh, first arcing up as the presidents, the people that ended up making the real world on MTV, that was like the first kind of, you know, group house reality show thing. They wanted to document our entire transition from bar band to, you know, superstars. And they came to a show and pitched us on it afterwards. And we were like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad we said no, because the, intensity of the like 
popularity that you get when you're on TV, that TV level is scary. I was scared, not scared, but I was glad that we were more famish than famous. So being famish means you get to do fun stuff. Being famous means you got to like watch your back. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw an interview with Ray Parker Jr. And he was saying that if the worst thing that, that happens to him is that people come up to him and go, Ghostbusters, yet he doesn't, never has to work a, a day in his life because of this this song, then, right. hey, that's a that's a small you know, thing to, to have to. Uh, oh, yeah. I find that kind of interaction with people that care about who I am uh, totally fun and fun and fine and wonderful. I remember as a kid going to see the Psychedelic Furs in 1982, hanging around after the show. You know, it's just like a dance floor littered with cups and we just didn't want to leave. And John Ashton, the guitar player, came walking out and I said hi to him and he said hi back, like one syllable. And I was just like, wow, you know, like that guy on the album cover said hi to me and like it meant a great deal to me. And so I always remembered that when it was me who was in a position to say a couple words to people or a sentence or, or just hi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, saw, I saw something recently actually where Paul McCartney said he won't do selfies with people, but he'll give you five minutes, five minutes of his time and actually just have a chat to you, uh, which is. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, just scanning through the questions there, and Bernie has asked about string gauge. Now, that's interesting considering you're oh, yeah. tuning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the presidents, when it was C sharp, G sharp, it's uh, my bass guitar was the low string, the C sharp was a 60 gauge, and the high was a 36. The high, that's the high is a little too th uh, thin, which made it a little flabby, a little flappy, which I liked wasn't as tight. Now, I think Dave's, I think uh, Andrew, who ended up taking over for Dave, I do remember he was 52, 42, 32, I think, something like that. Uh, anyway, you'd think they'd be the same, but it kind of depends on the guitar because the scale. Yeah, right. Yep. You know? uh, which is why I settled on SGs because it was consistent. And I knew that if I, you know, if, I had to rent one or borrow one or whatever, it would be the right scale. But yeah, generally mine is 6036. And then I think the three, well, actually I know the three string version on this guy is 524230. I want to say, wait, let me see. Hold on. This is a good question. I have all these. Before I stop playing live, I ordered a whole bunch of strings. 52, 5242. 30. Yeah. Cool. 52, 40, 30 is what I would recommend for a three string. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Chris, you, you started talking about synths before. Are you, are you much the synth nerd? Like, do you program your own sounds? Like, do you understand? Yeah. I'm just learning how to, in this, in this, uh, iPad version of, uh, the Moog, there's another keyboard called the model. 15 and that's a modular synthesizer and so um just yesterday actually i started doing the tutorial to try to understand how to really build sounds in this confusing crazy space nice what, what did you say that is i gotta take take note of that a model uh, it, 
Model 15. Model 15. Yeah, there was a day a little while back where all Robert Moog's birthday, on his last birthday, the uh, App Store made all of his synthesizers free. Well, some of them, most of them free. So um, <laughs> there's a little story with that too, just real quick. In freshman year college, I shared a, a dorm suite uh, with another guy named uh, Andrew. And Andrew was really into REM and acoustic music and folky music and stuff like that. And I was really into Walla Voodoo and Gary Newman and all these synthesizers. And we had a terrible graffiti war in the common bathroom of the suite, like synthesizers suck and, you know, acoustic guitars can go to hell, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it was, and I look at Facebook like twice a year. I'm not good at Facebook. I was looking at Facebook on Robert Moog's birthday by accident. And Andrew, of all people, is the one that told me about the free synthesizers. So... <laughs> he came it's, around. Yeah, extra. It's extra poetic when I call up these synthesizers. I'm like, yeah, good old uh, Andrew. So, so you're not a preset kind of guy, then. You, you like to listen to a sound and, and know, oh, that'd be great if I just adjusted the release time or the attack or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I absolutely every time I look for a sound, I will start with maybe a preset, and then I, yeah, I move it into its exact position. Um, as far as how it relates to what I needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I just, today I did this crazy sort of uh, almost uh, go ahead and jump kind of thing. I did see if it plays here. Hold on. Hold on. Where is it? Oh yeah, there it is. Okay. Check it out. Uh, you have to hear it in context. Wait a minute. love thick sawtooth waves like that just yeah i love them i don't know if that sounded any good on your it, end but anyway. it actually sounded really good over here man like that was a, a good feed of that so okay uh, cool it's a new song called california frown nice <laughs> nice uh someone's just content uh, um commented that synths are taking over again i hear there's a, a movement they call synth wave uh that the kids are yeah. trying to get in on on the 80s sounds Oh, oh, and then the, we toured Australia with the band Custard. Do you remember Custard? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And they had, they had a song, uh, The Synthesizers Are Taking Over the World. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. They were a fun, quirky band, much in the style of, oh. of, of you guys. Oh, yeah, we loved them. We toured, I think, twice around Australia with those guys. It, it was great. They're fantastic people. In fact, our manager fell in love with their guitar player. It was a it was a beautiful time. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. I believe their singer Dave went on to write um, jingles. I was a jingle writer myself for a while. Yeah, um, I did that too. Yeah. So uh, before, when I was saying about the the first thing that pops into your head is usually the right thing, that was coming from writing jingles where mm. you would just read the name of a product and just. Sing the first thing that came to your head. And you knew that was the right thing right there. But you'd yeah. always send off a draft to the, to the boss of the company, and they always wanted to put their own stamp on it, their own thumbprint on it, and would change well, something. It, as I used to say, they want to piss on it. And they would <laughs> mess up the rhyming scheme or, or the meter of it and just like, oh, here we go. And then after like three or four revisions, they'd always come back and say, oh, everyone says you had it right the first time. And you yeah, don't want to say, I know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, I have that experience too. It's a funny world. Uh, I enjoyed doing that. I did that for about 15 years and then I just burned out. I was like, you know, 
I listened back to 15 years worth of work in that world. And I was like, these are all incredibly mediocre songs. that are just, they're just not great. <laughs> I'm like I think I'd rather spend my energy just making something really great. So that, that's so. jingles you made? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, I did background music for like cell phone commercials and uh, industrial stuff. And like when Microsoft would have a big company all hands meeting at a, a Normo Dome, I would do the music for the backtrack of the of the thing. Or I'd write a song that I'd sing live at the meeting. Um, cool. So this is of... all post presidents. Yeah. 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 Wow. We did. Wow. We did the. We did a theme song as the presidents for a, a sitcom, and I. That's when my eyes were open. Like, oh, that's a thing. It could do that. And then when the presidents broke up, I just kept doing it on my own. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. It's a. It's a fun little way to to make a a living. But um, yeah, yeah as, as you say, you, you do listen back after a while. And I, I was in a situation where I had to write and produce maybe five or six a week. Uh, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. There was a sales team that was out there um, selling it hard, and oh wow, yeah. That's why I say um, usually the first thing that pops into mind. Yep, just bang, bang, bang. Um, <laughs> it would be a one man, one man setup. There, there was me and another producer, um, and we shared a, a drum booth in between the studios, and we just hit record, run around, and have it Pro Tools and loop record. And I'm not the best of drummers, but I could play a beat, and I'd play a few tapes yeah. and splice that together Pop it up in uh, pro tools yeah, yeah yeah double track triple track the vocals to make it seem, sound like i can vaguely sing in tune and <laughs> next thing you know you're all over the radio i, I remember oh, breaking yeah. up with an ex an ex-girlfriend of mine and she said and she was going all around australia as a sales job she said it's really hard to get you out of my mind when every time i walk into a shop you're singing at me on the radio <laughs> <laughs> about biscuits <laughs> um yeah, that and voiceovers. I used to do a lot of voiceovers. Yeah, Cavendish bananas, ninety nine cents, <laughs> all that kind of thing. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got it. You've kind of got that everyman Australian accent down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there is. There's variations of the Australian accent. Do you guys hear that? Like this, some that uh, what we would call very bogan. We guys talk like this. They really draw their their vowels back in the in their throat, and it's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I can distinguish New Zealand from Australia, but not inner Australia. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's funny yeah. being such a big place that I there isn't too much of a an accent from city to city. It's more. I can usually Regional. tell. I, I can usually tell if somebody's parents are Australian or not, and there's a there's a difference. Uh, the ones that do that, like I said, draw the vowels right back. They usually have Australian parents. Ooh, what's that noise? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what? My phone. Hold on one second. Okay. Yep. Oh, it's my wife. Let's, let's talk to my wife. Hey, Katie. Hi, Chris. You are on uh, uh, the TV right now, so don't say anything terrible. <laughs> Hi, Katie. No, I'm doing a, a, an interview with uh, Rick in Australia, and we're talking about guitars and stuff, and we're, uh, we're still talking. So you're on your way home from work, right? Yep. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I should probably go and keep talking. Uh, why don't I call you back when I'm done? I want to go to Australia. <laughs> please come. Please come. I live on the Gold Coast, a very beautiful part of Australia. Well, we've been there. We know it. We love it. Hope to see you soon someday. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. You haven't seen the Gold nicest Coast. What? Nicest people, nicest people in the world. 
Yeah, it's true. Yep. Yep. All right, boss. Uh, I'll call you when I'm done. All right. All right. Bye, Chubby. Bye. Bye, Skinny. Talk to you later. <laughs> nice, mate. Nice. Um, Chris, I, I know we've touched on all the things that people want to talk about when I can see that there is live viewers, but the questions, it's more just all the, the kudos and the, hey, love your band kind of thing there. Uh, yeah, so nice. I know that we've covered all the things that people want to want to hear. Uh, anything else that you would, that you got brewing that you want to promote or anything while I have you here, mate? No, really. Um, yeah, really just the chrisbaloo.org, uh, website for not only for my new albums, which the second one again is coming out on Friday called soul unfolded, but you, there's a deep archive there. There's a ton of ambient music I've made for meditation and spacing out and napping or background music for creativity, which is what I'm hearing people are using that for. And then there's archive stuff. There's this sampladelic music that I made for years. Um, a lot of that was to uh, actually license to television shows and stuff like that. It's very funky and weird. There's um, a Creepy Stick, the stuff I did with Dave Thiele. Some of what we've released is up there. Uh, there's uh, Egg, a band I had in Boston. Anyway, there's this, there's this whole uh, The Giraffes, which was my thing I did after the presidents. So if you're interested in kind of, uh, you know, having that stuff again all for free no pay um you can bop around in the archive plus i do visual art uh black and white drawings uh and they're up there too if you want to check them out so yeah that's the main thing chrisblue.org for all things current cool you know it's funny whenever i i do uh, suggest that i'm rounding up uh people start with the questions and jeff fox is asking what size venue did you comfortably enjoy playing once the presidents took off Mm. What was the, what's well, the best size? Best size, I'd say like 500. Yep. I like 500 because it feels like a rock show, but then you can really interact with the people in front. You can maybe start a running gag with the band, with the audience that plays 50,000. Not my favorite at all. You, then you lose a, contact with people that way, the 50,000? And you kind of have to just fire up the machine and just really concentrate on delivering the songs. At least we did. I mean – we didn't feel like we really owned that space. Um, I mean, you know, we we rocked it and everything, and it was fun. But yeah, and then as far as the Casper thing turned me on to, you know, fifty people. Fifty people is really nice, especially when they're little kid, little kids. Smaller is definitely uh, better in a lot of ways because you get to um, dialogue with the people. Yeah, yeah. And did that come naturally for you? Like when when the things did take off, did, was it a case of? Oh, I'm a front man now and I need to entertain the people or did did that just naturally flow? Are you just that kind of chap? I'm just that kind of guy. Yeah. I'm kind of just naturally a little bit like MC uh uh in a situation like that. Uh, although I got better at it as time went on. Toward the end of the presidents, I was really feeling the comedy. I do feel like at some point I might have to dare myself to do stand-up comedy. Uh I it, my favorite comics are so amazing though that I don't think I could, I mean, I can't do the whole like, what's up with that kind of thing. It's more like Mitch Hedberg, uh, Stephen Wright, Emo Phillips, the guys who really like twist reality. Yeah. My favorite Mitch Hedberg joke, just to give you an idea, is I want to travel. I, I want to put pins in a map to show all the places I've traveled to. But first I have to travel to the top two corners of the map so it won't fall down. 
that see that's just like it's a yeah. beautiful yeah there's a yeah. moment when you hear that joke where your mind breaks you know there's a, a beautiful joke like that is like a uh, a gift of a moment of losing yourself uh, yeah. i just yeah. love and it's funny some people just have a natural delivery and i think it comes through in your music that you'd be that kind of guy yeah maybe I, well the one thing that occurred to me is i could just be a cover comedian where i could just go out and do like five minutes of mitch five minutes of emo five minutes of Stephen wright and then of course the uh, theme music for me would be cover 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 comedian <laughs> yes yes but you can have a cover band but you can't be a cover comedian i think i don't think that would fly in that community yeah so. i was thinking that like um i hear talk of that that amongst comics that stealing stealing other people's jokes is a, a big no-no yeah but if i weren't saying it was my joke yeah. if i was a cover comedian i mean would that work Absolutely. i guess specifically uh, brilliant dead comedians because then you know you can't see them <laughs> and there's some great ones out there there's some great ones there are, there are. Yeah. Yeah. i'm not i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna do it <laughs> I'm too scared. You you may have put some thoughts into uh, somebody watching this. You may have just started a new movement of cover comedians. Yeah, yeah. cover comedians. A whole. I'll be the I'll be the booking agent for all the cover comedians. That's what I'll do. And nice. I'll, yeah, I'll be the MC for the for the yeah. night. Chris, funny thing. Um, at one point, I was wondering whether you were related to Adrian Ballou, and then I realized that it's spelled completely different. Yeah, he. I did talk to him when I was in college. I went out with a girl who was friends with him. Really? Weird. Yeah. And I talked to him on the phone one, one night about uh, our last name. <laughs> it wasn't a very long conversation. But he said, in his words, there are 37 ways to spell it. And they're all boringly French. And I don't know really what he meant by that, but that stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, right. Classic. Classic. So. Chris, I want to say thank you so much for your time, man. It's been great talking to you. Um, yeah. folks, big round of applause for Chris. You didn't, you didn't know I had a studio audience back there, did you? Yeah. <laughs> nice Ooh. one. And folks, like, subscribe, all that kind of thing. I, I never really throw that in. I, I figure that people are either going to like and subscribe or, or they're not. Uh, mm. But yeah, we're, we're doing a cool thing over here, get some cool guests. Just got to get the word out there. Some, some people are nice enough to say yes when I send them an email, and Chris is one of those guys. So, again, Chris, I thank you, and I'm going to hit my magic button, which brings up my end screen, and it looks something like a disc. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.